happens then is like it starts blowing my hair. I feel like I'm in the car, the window's down, it's a mess. <laughs> Judges chapter 4. I've given this message a title. It's called, Who Cares? The story is told of a principal who called all of his students in on the first day of school into a general assembly. And as he was talking to that group of middle schoolers, he was warning them about the dangers facing their generation. And he said, the biggest problem of today that we are facing, and especially you as students, is ignorance and apathy. And one of the kids that was sitting in the audience leaned over and whispered to his friend, and he said, what's ignorance and apathy? And his friend, who was bored and very disinterested in what the whole thing and what was going on, looked back at his friend and he said, I don't know and I don't care. The book of Judges chronicles a period of Israel's history and their early existence that was plagued by a never-ending cycle of sin and then salvation and repentance. And in chapter 4, where we come tonight, we come to yet another installment in this sin cycle saga. Now, in every one of these segments, there are clues in the text that indicate to us exactly what was going on in the times. Let's start in verse 1. It says, When Ehud was dead, the man who employed the double-edged sword into the big fat man Eglon, it says, The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, with Othniel, who was the first judge in their first cycle, the cause of the bondage and the rebellion was the intermarriage and the intermingling of the children of Israel with the people of the land. The effect of that was corruption amongst God's people, which resulted then in their bondage and the impression of, you know, the evil there. The second cycle under Ehud that we saw last week, it was caused by idolatry. The people had turned from the living God and they were serving idols, worshiping idols. And the effect of that is that there was an infiltration into, in Israel of the enemies of Israel, the Amalekites and the Moabites you, you know, and, and the Ammonites. And they came in and, and they infiltrated. And the result of that, again, was bondage and corruption. Now, as we come to chapter 4, though we're not told specifically what the evil was, yet as we move through the narrative, we discover that the cause of this cycle of sin was none other than spiritual apathy. The effect of that then was evil, that it says in verse 1 that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the result of that was oppression as we've seen in other studies. Now, I know it's a little bit of a spoiler, but God's going to raise up a prophetess in this situation, and then her counterpart She'll work in tandem with a general whose name is Barak. So Deborah and Barak will be the heroes of this segment. And through them, God will deliver again his people and they will be again set right. And the reason that I give you that spoiler is because in chapter 5, which is the, the chapter you know, that, that comes next, it goes with the chapter in tonight's Bible study, is a song of victory that Deborah and Barak wrote and then rehearsed, and then recorded in Scripture for us. And it's in that song that they really lay out the conditions of what was going on in Israel in the time of Deborah and Barak, and why it was the way it was. 
And some of the things that you'll discover as you read through that song in chapter 5 is that the leaders weren't leading. That the highways were deserted and that village life had ceased. There was no more community. There was no fight in the people. Verse 10 of chapter 5 indicates that the people were more consumed with their donkeys, their Harley donkeys, you know, and their Armani suits and clothes, nice clothes, and they weren't able then to be consumed with what was going on in the nation. It tells us that they were disengaged from battle, rather they were gathered by the springs, or if you would, by the cooler. They were into their rest and refreshing. In verse 12, she tells them, awake, awake, and arise, arise, seeking to stir the people to their feet. In verses 15 and 16, it speaks of the tribe of Reuben as having great intentions to do great things for God and the nation. But yet, with those intentions, they never did anything, and they just sat on the sidelines there, uh, too concerned with their flocks to actually do anything with their convictions. In verse 17, it talks about how Gad and Manasseh stayed on the other side of the Jordan. That it was too far of a journey for them to come into Israel and contribute to what the need was in those times, and so they stayed in their place. Dan, we're told, stayed with his ships, his commerce, his business, what he was doing. And Asher, we are told, was hanging out on the beach. And so the condition was that everyone was so engaged with their thing and their lives that they were oblivious to the demise rather, of the nation. And so if that was the case, that spiritual apathy is what led them to the evil that we see them now doing, then how did they get there? How did they end up in a place of evil simply because they were apathetic? And so we begin to discover these uh, answers. The first thing that we notice is that there had been 80 years of rest and prosperity. It tells us that in chapter 3, verse 30, if you just look up with your eyes to the end of the last chapter, it says that Moab had been subdued that day under the hand of Israel and that the land had rest for 80 years. And so for 80 years, they had rest and prosperity. Now, there is a scientific law called the second law of thermodynamics. And if you've been high school educated, you've probably heard of that or know what it is. What that law basically says is that systems tend towards disorder. That is, that if a system has no energy enacted upon it, its natural course will be to break down and come into a state of disorder rather than into a state of order. And we know that to be true. We experience that in our everyday interaction with the world. Your body, if you don't do something with it, if you just sit around and vegetate, your body begins to break down. Your muscles break down. The systems of your body don't work as efficiently. Your metabolism slows down because systems tend toward disorder. It happens with machines. If you leave a car or something mechanical sitting idle, it, it breaks down. It doesn't work as well. If you've ever had a car sit for a long period of time, most likely you're going to have to fix your brakes because even things that, you know, like that, that, that don't wear down if they're not being used, if they're not being used, they don't stay in the form and function that they're supposed to. Things that are left to themselves in a place of rest tend to break down. Now, the same thing is true spiritually. When a person is at rest and disengaged or they become apathetic to spiritual things, the natural recourse of that is that it's going to begin to break down. It's going to happen. 
Two times in the Old Testament, God gives this indictment. One time to Moab and another time to Jacob, his own people. He says that they are settled on their lees. It's a King James word. In the New King James, it uses the word dregs. He says, my people have become settled on their dregs. The dregs were the little pieces of grape, the leftover bits of grape flesh that would be left in the skins when the winemakers would initially pour. The dregs would settle to the bottom, and the wine, the precious part, the valuable part, would stay on the surface to the top. And what the winemaker would do is he would pour the wine from vessel to vessel. He would then pour the wine into a new vessel, leaving the dregs in the old and letting the process happen some more, and and the dregs would settle again. And then it would be poured to another vessel. And the indictment that God was giving, he said, my people have been settled on their lees. Their flavor is yet in them. That is, the flesh of the old man has become integrated without or throughout, and it's ruined the flavor and the quality of it. And so God says, my solution to that is that I'm going to pour them from vessel to vessel so as to separate what is pure from the bits of flesh that are left over. And when a person is spiritually idle, they become settled in their dregs. And we become a drag, you know, to others around us, and we begin to experience that. I find it interesting that in our country today, it's been about 80 years since the end of the Great Depression. If you do the math and figure out the years, it's been 80 years. And I would say, by and large, except for a few bumps in the road, we've experienced as a nation a long season of rest and prosperity in this land. And the result of that is that we have become spiritually apathetic as a people. Not just the world. They're apathetic in their own way. But even the church, we've become apathetic. And the result of that is what we see here in verse 1. It says that when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The second cause for spiritual apathy is given to us in the next two verses, and that is this. And that is accepting the status quo. Not just rest and ease, but accepting the status quo. Notice in verse 2. It says, So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth, Hegoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. For Jabin, the king, had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. We're told that the source and the reason for the oppression that God's people were facing was the presence and power of this wicked Canaanite king named Jabin and the leader of his host, his general, whose name was Sisera, along with the 900 chariots and no doubt the necessary personnel to operate those chariots and also bring the oppression that was being given to the people of God. And so they're being oppressed in this time. And you ask the question, how did that happen? How did the people of God that were given this land, that are supposed to have autonomy and absolute authority over it, end up in a place where there's a Canaanite king so strong that they can't even hold a candle to his strength, his general, his army, or the might, the strength of his military armament? How did it happen? Well, it didn't happen overnight. It happened over time. And here's how it happened. It happened when the things that are or were became normal just because they were. In other words, 
there's not even supposed to be Canaanites there in the land. They were supposed to be completely expelled so that they weren't even an issue. But there were Canaanites there in the land, and the people accepted it, and it just became normal that there are Canaanites. The Canaanites weren't supposed to be increasing their strength and having a king reign over them who's organized and has a, a military. But he did. He had a military, and he was organized, and the people accepted it, and it just became normal. There wasn't supposed to be chariots of iron operated by that king. And if there was, God specifically said through Moses that the people weren't to be afraid of those chariots of iron and that they weren't allowed to allow the enemies to have that kind of armament. But they did. Because as they grew, the people said, well, this is just the way that it is. And so there's not really much that we can do about it at this point. And really we're very busy in all the things that we're doing. And so we're just going to kind of accept things uh, for the way they are. And when you accept what is as normal simply because it is, then you've become apathetic. And you find yourself in a very dangerous place. How did we get to a place in our nation in the year 2013 where we accept the fact that the name of God and Jesus Christ is not acceptable in schools, universities, courtrooms, and public places. How did we get to a place in our Christian-founded nation where we allow, encourage, and now even pay for the murdering of babies in the womb? How did we get to a place where sovereign control of our currency is now in the hands of international entities with absolutely no accountability to the people or the governing powers of this land. How did we get there? How did we get to a point in this nation where we've allowed our jobs and our livelihood to be given to third world nations? How have we come to a place where we allow a 21-year-old girl on a nationally televised award event to dance like a stripper and then to make such a big deal of it and promote it in such a way that anybody who wants to see it can see it and it can be celebrated and highlighted on every media outlet, on every news station and magazine and newspaper in the nation. How did we get to that point? How did we get to a point in our nation, in the United States, where we allow a godless government to act independently of the will of the people and do whatever it wants, no matter what? I'll tell you how. Because we came to a place where we've accepted what is as normal just because it is. Edmund Burke said this, that the only thing that has to happen for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And when a people, and especially the people of God, become apathetic in their calling and the thing that they've been given by him, the stewardship and the oversight, then evil will advance exponentially and the people of God will find themselves asleep and unable to do anything about it. Now, it's one thing when it happens to a nation, but it can't happen to a nation unless it first happens to the Christians, the people of God within that nation. And one of the things that has very definitely happened over the last 80 years of American history is that the church has become grossly apathetic. We don't share our faith because it's culturally frowned upon for us to do so. People say, hey, politics and religion are off limits. We don't talk about those things. We don't read our Bibles because we've believed the lie that this is spiritual, but everything out there is real and physical. And if you become too spiritual, you become useless in the real or the physical. 
And so we believe that lie. And so people save their Bibles for Sundays or Wednesdays or for a particular time, but they don't live by and stand upon the Word of God. We don't touch topics in our churches that might be in some way politically charged because we might find ourselves being offensive to someone that's of a particular political persuasion. And rather than dealing with the headache that that might bring, we choose rather to remain silent about it and evil advances because of it. We as Christians fill ourselves with every bit of worldly entertainment with no conviction or question of whether or not it's acceptable to God. And the result of that is that we as Christians in the United States of America in 2013 have become morally impure, spiritually impotent, and grossly apathetic. And so what are the marks that demonstrate or prove that apathy has set in or taken its hold upon a people or the people of God in a time. Well, we, look at, we see the answer here as we look at verse 4. Four things for you to consider, to write down. Signs that apathy has taken its grip. Number one, if you're taking notes, the first sign that the people of God have become apathetic is when the women have taken the lead in spiritual things. Don't get upset with me yet. Hear me out. Verse 4. It says, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, there's no disputing the fact that God in his sovereignty and in his order, that he has ordained that men be the spiritual leaders in things. As we look here at the book of Judges, we find that 12 of the judges were male, and only one of them was female, this woman Deborah here. When we read through the kings, Israel's next governing body, we'll find that all of the kings, without exception, were male, those that ruled in Israel. When it came to the time of Christ, all 12 of the apostles were males. We see that throughout. We see that the prophets were all males, and that Paul clearly expresses that it's the male's responsibility to be those spiritual leaders of the prophets and the pastors, the leaders of his church and of his people. Now, I don't know why God chose that. Here's what I do know. I know that men are not superior to women, not in reality or in the eyes of God or practically. I know that we're not superior, we're not smarter, in many cases we're stupider. You know, and, and we're not more qualified and more competent. I don't know why. I can't give you a reason why, spiritually, scripturally, why God said it that way or wants it that way, other than that it is. And I can tell you this, is that he who made them, male and female, in the beginning, knows how we operate. The Bible says that he took something from the man, he gave it to the woman, he put the two together, and he said, their name shall be called Adam. And so God chose that the expression of man in its perfection would be when the man and the woman come together as one. And I don't know why he gave what he gave to the males and why he gave what he gave to the females, but he has ordered and ordained certain things to be a certain way, and that's just his plan. And I don't know why, but here's what I do know. I do know that there is a universal law that's true from the time of Adam, and it will always be true as long as there's humans on this earth. That a child, no matter who that child is, no matter from what walk of life, whether they are male or female, they seek the approval of their fathers. That's a naturally given fact that they want that. We see it in Adam. We see it him wanting approval from God. We see it with his sons, Cain and Abel. We see it with the sons of Noah, 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth seeking the approval of their father. We see it with the sons of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, each wanting a blessing from their dad. We see it with the sons of Jacob constantly jockeying for who's going to have their father's approval. We see it throughout the whole Bible all the way through. And even today, even the most deadbeat dad that you could find, their children still hunger and thirst for their father's approval. It's just something that we want. A poll was recently published of 25-year-olds from every walk of life in every place. And the question that was asked them was this. Who is, from your birth to the age of 25, the person who has influenced your life the most? And the answer was amazing because it wasn't a teacher, it wasn't a professor, a celebrity, a musician, or a public figure. The number one answer that was given, 25-year-olds, who's the number one influence in your life? It was my dad, my father. Obviously, not everyone said that, but it was the majority answer. There's a saying that we use in leadership circles, and it goes like this. It says that the speed and the direction of the leader will be the speed and the direction of the team. And when a dad takes the leadership of the house as God has ordained, the people in that household are going to follow the direction of that leadership, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Because the speed of the leader and the direction will affect the speed and the direction of the team. And inasmuch as God has appointed men to take the lead spiritually in their families, in the church, and in society, so also the speed and direction of those churches, families, and societies will be reflected by that leadership. And here's the point. Is that men, we have been called to be the spiritual leaders, first of all, in our homes. To grab the helm of spiritual leadership and to carry the torch and responsibility of washing our wives with the water of the word and training our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Secondly, that we hold that torch, the same torch that we hold at home, that we hold it up in the church. That we as the men of the church set forth the spiritual direction of the church at large in the nation and in the world. And then thirdly, out in society, that we carry the lamp of Christ, not different from what we do at home or in the church, but that we bear that light in those places that God has ordained. We've been called to do that. Now, having said that concerning the men and the fact that Deborah is the ruler here, I want to point this out to you. And if you haven't heard me yet, because for whatever reason, make sure you hear me now, is that Deborah, in this instance, is not wrong. Deborah is not outside of the will of God by being where she is, doing what she's doing, or even in the way that she does it. She is an excellent A++ example of a godly woman. And we're going to see that a little bit later on in our study. So hold on to that thought. But the number one mark that apathy has set in, in a place, or in the church, is when the women have taken the spiritual direction. The second mark of it, and we see it also here in the text, is when the attitude amongst the men is reluctant because of opposition. Notice with me in verse uh, 6. It says, Then she sent, and she called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali. And she said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. 
But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. Now what we get from this text here is that Barak knew exactly what it is that he was called to do. Because Deborah says to him, has not God commanded? And then given him the instruction. In other words, Barak already knew what it was that he was called to do. And he didn't really want to do it. He doesn't really want to go. That's what we get from the statement that he said to Deborah. He's like, yeah, I know that God told me I'm supposed to do it, but I really don't feel like it. I don't want to go that way right now. I guess if you go with me, then maybe I I will. Here's the problem with men, women, and you already know this. You could come up here and preach this for me, but I'm going to let our vulnerability out for you for a minute. Men in the flesh, okay, is that we are a lot like electricity. And that we will take the path of least resistance. And what that is, is a very nice way of saying that we naturally are very lazy. We will always take the easy way. If there's two ways to do things, we'll take the easy way. If there's an uphill and a straight across, we'll take the straight across. Because we do things the easy way. That's what we do. We don't ask for directions because that involves effort. It's easier just to keep going and see where we end up. However... Even though that's true, that we are lazy in that regard, there is another weakness that you also still know about, but I'm going to remind you of. And that's this, and this is top secret. Don't ever let women know that this is true. We hate pain. We hate pain. Proof? Wives, what's your husband like when he gets a cold? Right? I can't do anything, you know. When you women, when you get a cold, you do everything. It's like there can't even be a blip in the radar in between what you're doing. But we catch a cold, the world stops. I'm in bed, don't bother me, don't answer the phone, I'm not going to work, I'll see you in a week, you know. Here's the point of all this, is that in order for a man to get up and do the thing that he's called to do, oftentimes what has to happen is that the pain that comes from not doing the thing that I'm supposed to do has to exceed the pain of doing the thing that I'm supposed to do. Do you follow? In other words, this is going to be hard. I don't want to do it. And so I'm not going to do it until not doing it hurts too much. And once not doing it hurts, now I'm going to do it. It's reluctance because of opposition, because the thing's not going to happen. I was driving with a friend of mine who has a company truck. We were driving down the road together, and, you know, he gets his gas paid for, he gets his repairs paid for. I mean, it's a company truck. And so I'm riding in the passenger seat, and I look over, and I notice that the check engine light is on. And I said to him, I said, hey, your check engine light is on. He goes, oh, yeah, it is. And so he reaches down. And he takes a little piece of electrical tape, and he peels it off, and he puts it over the place where the light is on the dashboard. And he says, that takes care of that, doesn't it? See? Reluctance because of opposition. Oh, you mean i got to deal with this thing? Hey, the car's running fine. There doesn't seem to be any problem. I'm just going to put this little sticker here, and I'm not going to worry about what, what happens. Well, no. So I asked him, I said, okay, I said, when's the last time you changed your oil? Okay, so he looks up at the little sticker, And he says, okay, this says 23,006. I said, well, that's when you're supposed to change it. How many miles you got? He goes, 42,003. And I said, are you serious? You haven't changed your oil in 20-something thousand miles? He's like, no, I haven't. Okay, all right. Well, here's what's happening right now, is that the pain of actually making an appointment and going and taking care of these things is too much for you. But how much pain is it going to be when you're stranded on the side of the road and your engine is seized because you're not doing the things that you have to do, that you're called to do? 
Now, it's funny and humorous when we put it in that context of talking about his truck. But what happens, dads, when it's not our truck, our cars, but our kids? We know what we're called to do. We know that we're called to train them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But it's going to cost something. It's going to cost some effort and some time. It's going to cost us some discipline to make sure our lives are in order so that the things that we're teaching them aren't contradicting what they're seeing when they look at our lives. It's going to cost us some education because we're actually going to have to learn the things that we're seeking to instill and communicate in them for ourselves. And so most men take the easy road on that and say, well, there's really no problem with my kids right now, so it's really not important or imperative that I give myself to this practice, this discipline of taking care of them this way. Well, wait a minute. Once the pain that comes from not doing that is realized by you, at that point you can't go back and say, well, now I'll go back and take care of it. It's too late. Because the rebellion or the worldliness or whatever else it is, the influence that has shaped their heart now because you haven't or we haven't, dads, that can't easily be undone. And so the call for us is to be diligent about the things that we know we're called to do. We're called to be the spiritual leaders in our homes, to teach our kids, to lead our wives, to lead our churches, to carry the lamp and the torch of Christ through this world. And if we don't do that, at some point, the opposition is going to outweigh the difficulty it would take to just do those things in the first place. So the sign of apathy is when we're not doing the things that we're called to do because, hey, what's the point? There's no big deal. There's no problem with me not doing it. And so I'm just not going to do it. And that's a scary place. It's a sign of a divided heart. Number three, the third sign, and we see it here also in verse eight, is conditional obedience. The third sign that you've become apathetic is that there's conditional obedience. Notice, let's read it again, verse eight. It says, And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not What he's saying here, very simply, he says, I will do what God told me to do, if I can do it on my terms. And it happens in the way that I want. I'll wait for a Christian husband, the young Christian lady says, if, God, he's tall, dark, and handsome. And if he's got a good job, and a nice car, and he knows how to dress, and he's financially secure, and you give him to me sometime this month. But otherwise, God, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, that's a little bit humorous and we can relate to it, but don't we do that all the time? We do it with our giving. Well, I'll give if the money is there, if it's practical, and if it's wise in the eyes of the finances or how it works out on the checkbook, then I'll give God if it works out. Or like Jacob, we say, if God, you promise to reward me with a hundredfold, then I'll give. We're saying if and then. God, I'll be obedient to what you've called me to do in serving or in sharing or in my holiness and doing the things that I've been called to do. I'll be disciplined, Lord. I'll stay in this marriage. I'll, I'll do these. And we, 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 we put all of these conditions on the things that we know are the will of God for us to do. It's conditional obedience. And it's a sign of a divided heart. And it's spiritual apathy. And it's a dangerous place to be. Number four that you cannot hear the Spirit's voice. When you're spiritually apathetic, you cannot hear the Spirit's voice. Notice in verse 9. It says, So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey that you're taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. 
Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite, and we're introduced to a new character here, this man named Heber, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites, or from the rest of the Kenites. So this man, Hobab, is a Kenite, but he separates from the Kenites. And it says that he pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. And they, that is the house of Hobab, we're going to find out that he has an allegiance with Jabin, this wicked king. It says that they reported to Sisera, the general of Jabin, that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So he gets some intelligence here. The enemy king gets intelligence that Barak has taken the troops up Mount Tabor, and now he gets the secret word. And so his response, verse 13, So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Herosheth Hegoim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! Notice that. Circle it. Highlight it. See it there. Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Sometimes I think that we as Christians are guilty of elevating Bible characters to superhuman levels. What I mean by that is this. Is that we think that Abraham... Because he heard the voice of the Lord that he was something different or special or other than what we are. We think of Moses or David or Joshua or Samuel or Samson or any of the other people as being something that we ourselves never could be. And that's an error. That's a wrong concept, a wrong way for us to look. The New Testament book of James tells us that they were men of like passions like we are. And he uses Elijah as his example, the man who called down fire from heaven. That he was just like you and me. He had flesh and blood. He had weaknesses and fears. They're all just like we are. What we do is we put them on a level that we can never attain to. But in the process, we excuse ourselves from what God might want to do or work through our lives. The kingdom of God is right now at work, right here in our midst. It's as real as the physical kingdom that we are operating in. The only difference is that we can't see it. We understand it, especially those of us that are saved. We believe it. We know that the Spirit of God is doing work in our hearts right now. We know that there are battles, things happening that we can't see in realms that we don't necessarily understand. But the kingdom of God is real among us and alive. And there's a king and there's citizens. We are the citizens of that kingdom. But here's what happens when we become apathetic. Is that we become so uninvolved in that invisible kingdom and so over-consumed with what we're doing here and now in this world that we become detached from what's going on in the kingdom of God and we lose touch with what the Spirit is saying or doing or maybe wants to say to us or do for us. And that's exactly where we see Barak at in this story. He it fits the bill perfectly of a man who's even a leader, but yet he's fallen into this trap of, uh, you know, apathy. When we, as God's people, this is you and I, when we are in a right relationship with God, and when we're daily growing in His Word, and seeking to hear His voice, 
and continually understand and be deepened in the things of God, we become in tune with what he's doing. We become familiar with his kingdom. We start to understand how spiritual things work. We recognize and experience his voice more and more as he speaks to us. We learn how to be led of him, and ultimately we find the reason for our existence, why we were created, why we're here on this earth in the first place, and the purpose that we're to serve. But when we become apathetic, we lose touch with all of that, and we become absolutely clueless as to what's going on in the kingdom of God. For this man, Barak, God has a plan for him. There's something that God wants to do. There's a great deliverance that God wants to work. But this guy is so out in left field that even on the day that that call comes, he has to be told by this woman, Deborah, to get up. Get up. And I picture him working on his golf swing. He's over there and he's just going like, I, I do in my mind. I just see him there and he's like, mm, you know, mm, and he's trying to you know, work it out. And she's like, hey, don't you realize what's going on? Do you see the severity of the times and what we're, what we're doing? I printed up this article. This was from today. Maybe you read this. It's from the Associated Press. San Francisco. The man drew the gun several times on the crowded San Francisco commuter train with surveillance video showing him pointing it across the aisle without anyone noticing and then putting it back against his side, according to authorities. The other passengers were so absorbed in their phones and tablets that they didn't notice the gunman until he randomly shot and killed a university student, authorities said. Before that moment, footage showed the man pull out the forty-five caliber pistol and once wipe his nose with the hand holding the gun, authorities told the San Francisco Chronicle in a story on Monday. These weren't concealed movements. The gun is very clear, District Attorney George Garcon said. These people are in very close proximity with him, and nobody sees it. They're just so engrossed, texting and reading and whatnot, they're completely oblivious to their surroundings. And I read that article, and I said, that's exactly what we're talking about in church tonight. As people, Christians, we're so consumed with our life and with this world and what's happening now that we're oblivious to everything that's going on in the kingdom of God. And there's a cost associated with that. Uh, in, you know, in the thing. And so we're paying too much attention. Our lives are being stolen out from under us. Now, before we get into the solution, we've seen the marks, the signs, that, that, that they are apathetic. We see Deborah is, is grabbed the reins of leadership. We see that Barak doesn't want to act because of the opposition. His obedience is conditional, and he can't hear the Spirit's voice. He has to have someone else tell him what God is saying because he's not listening himself. Before we get into the solution, I promised you a little bit earlier the godly example that Deborah is. And since we've seen now the course of what she does in this story, let me give to you four quick things for you to write down that make Deborah the godly woman that she was. Number one is that she was willfully submitted to God and then thus to the man that God had placed over her life. Though she, uh, went, as, she went as far as she could in the thing that God had called her to do. But once it came to a point where she was not called by God to go any further, she then allowed Barak to go forward with the plan. She wasn't interested in being the commander of the thing. She wanted God's will. And so she was a woman that was in submission to God. Second of all, she was unspeakably humble. And that is that although she was the initiator of this move of God, that it wouldn't have happened apart from her, 
Yet she was willing when she came to the point that she had to, to hand the torch to someone else. And she's going to allow someone else even to get the glory. And she'll get no glory or credit other than the eternal glory and credit that she gets in the word for the battle and the victory. She's humble. Third of all, she's lovingly bold. In verse 8, we saw that she is able to speak to Barak in a bold, cutting, stinging way. But yet she's able to do it in love and with clarity because she was in the spirit and she was speaking for the Lord. And then number four, she's explosively motivating. And that is in verse 14 where she yells at Barak and she says, up. I call this the foot in the back exhortation. Here's the foot in the back exhortation, wives. Saturday mornings, men's discipleship. At 7 o'clock, put your foot in the middle of his back and say, up, and push him out of the bed. (laughs) On Sunday mornings, when he doesn't want to come to church and be a spiritual leader in the church or for his family, put your foot in the middle of his back and say, up, and push him out of the bed. And on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m., when we gather here for prayer, in room D right there, put your foot in the middle of his back, kick him out the door, and say, up, get out. You know, explosively motivating. Push your men to be what God has called them to be, the spiritual leaders in this house. Deborah was a godly woman, and she gives us a godly example of what that woman looks like. So what's the solution to this apathy as we come to this point in the text and we see ourselves so clearly in it? Notice with me in verse 15. It says, And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hegoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Now here's another godly woman, second one in the text the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So Heber was in cahoots with Jabin. Not supposed to be, but he was. And so here comes Sisera now, and he thinks he has an ally, a friend, in Jael. But verse 18 says, And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. So here's number one as far as the solution for apathy. And if you're writing notes, you can jot this down. That when the enemy asks for a drink, give him some milk. When the enemy asks for a drink, give him some milk. Sisera comes and he thinks he has a loyal servant in this woman, Jael. And he begins to boss her around. Just like our enemy does to us when he thinks he has an an alliance with us, an, uh, an ally. She says, give me some water. I need something to drink. And hide me. And stand at the door, and if anyone comes, lie to them. Tell them that I'm not in here, that I'm not hiding in this skin inside of here. Lie, tell them. And so he comes, and he bosses her around. But what does she do? She doesn't heed the command. Instead, she gives him some milk. What is the significance of this? What's the picture? 
that the Holy Spirit is seeking to paint. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Milk in the Bible, constantly a picture of the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says to them, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for as yet you've not been able to bear it. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, the writer says that you have become those that are in need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word. You know, and so milk, a constant picture of the word of God. What's the symbolism? What's the point? If you find yourself in a place of spiritual apathy, and when you have, there is no doubt going to be some evil alongside with it. That When that enemy comes and says, feed me, instead of obeying the will of the enemy, You give it some milk. That's exactly what Jesus did when the enemy came to him. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Fulfill the satisfaction that you need. Make something for yourself that's going to satisfy the longing that's in you. And how did Jesus respond? He said, it is written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. He said, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Three times the enemy came to him seeking to order him around, and three times Jesus gave him milk. It is written. It is written. It is written. And so how do you deal with the enemy when he comes thinking that he has something in you? When you want to break that bondage, you give the enemy milk. You give him the word. You say, okay, that's very clever, preacher. I, I saw what you did there with the milk and the enemy. That's great. I've done that. And granted, it's worked. The enemy has, like Sisera, gone to sleep. I've given him milk. I've quoted the word. The temptation has waned. He's seemingly been asleep. But eventually, he always wakes up rested. He always comes back, and for some reason, he's stronger when he returns. And that's when I find myself faltering. Well, then you need to do number two. Go get your hammer. Look at verse 21. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, a nail, it says in the King James, a tent nail. And she took a hammer in her hand and she went softly, subtly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then... As Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. You say, what's this? Oh my goodness. 